Hello humans, welcome to If You Can't Beat Him, Join Him on Patreon. This is episode 37 of your Power Report, and I am Dan from the internet. This week on the show, we've got a good one. Um, my fake left exposed video um, that kind of kicked off this new era of Power Report. Uh, that got a quite a big response, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, also, I've got the truth about inflation because far too few people out there are telling you the truth about inflation. Um, it's not that hard. It's not that complicated. I'm not going to make it boring. I'm going to make it really simple. And we're going to talk about that later in the show. But first, up on the rundown. There's a lot, ton of demand uh, for non-issues in politics. And there are plenty of bullshit merchants who are able to opportunistically take money from people and give them nothing in return but non-productive outrage and political nihilism. There's barely even any news content in a lot of this stuff. It's just feeding people's preconceived uh, political notions, not really providing them with tangible actions they could take, not really presenting um, real solutions that are not dead ends. But you can make a lot of money off of just lazily providing this kind of content. And um, this is Power Report, so we'll name names. We've called out Jimmy Dore uh, very often on the show lately. But if you call, if you recall an even earlier episode of Power Report from last year, Left So White, um, we also mentioned Glenn Greenwald, who has a history of being a prominent uh, left-wing journalist, uh, often covering the surveillance state in the 2000s and early 2010s, but has recently made a shift more towards the right-wing and to more right-wing audiences. Um, this is something that, you know, Bam and I on Power Report have sort of subjectively noticed, but um, recently there's an article that was able to demonstrate, still in a subjective manner, but um, in a way that, you know, provides a strong analysis to show Greenwood's, Greenwald's uh, rightward shift over the past few years. So I really want to talk to the author of that article. I think it was the methodology behind it was um, really sound. It was explained really well. Um, and not only was it a good article, but I think it was a really good example of how to do independent media in a way that is trustworthy. Owen Higgins has a substack called The Flashpoint. You can find it at owenhiggins.substack.com. Link is in the podcast and YouTube video descriptions. Um, you can also follow Owen on Twitter at Owen Higgins. Oh, by the way, it's spelled E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S underscore. Um, and so it'll be Owen Higgins, E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S dot substack dot com. Um, it's again, the link is available in the podcast description and YouTube description. So you can really easily get it there. And uh, this is a special one. This is the first time we are doing a uh, split kind of power report. Really, um, you're going to get the first half of my interview with Owen and the free version of the show. But if you are a member, a Syndicate 23 member, you will be able to get the second portion of the interview with Owen, where we kind of dig a little bit deeper into some of these um, stranger left wing figures and really kind of get a good sense of what how to like combat this and make sure that the independent news ecosystem can be one that flourishes with information that runs counter to you know, traditional media's narratives on, you know, cable news, independent media, I'm oh, sorry, um, uh, print media is what I'm trying to say. Um, to have an independent media that flourishes and can run counter to those traditional forms of media, but can still um, run on trust, run on honesty, run on integrity, and provide its audience with a good, you know, service. 
So yeah, the second half of the interview can be found for members at syndicate23.co. And it's a really good time to talk about Syndicate 23 really fast. Power Report, along with the other shows that I am doing, that includes Audio Face, that includes the Dan from the Internet specials that I'm doing, um, are all going to have some bonus content uh, that'll be available as part of Syndicate 23. That's the whole umbrella, the production company that we're doing this all under. Um, and it's going to be, I'm ultimately starting it eventually, um, you know, just with myself, because I'm doing a lot of the bulk of the production work on this, but it's ultimately going to be a person of color, worker owned and operated um, content co-op that provides services for people who like need help with um, content for their own needs and um, also continuing to provide the content that you know and love here. Um, the bonus content will be to kind of um give thanks to people who are able to financially support us as we're growing during this really crucial time and um it'll also help us to provide the bulk of our content for free continually um for those who are still kind of discovering growing or who um are not able to financially afford um what the rates are right now we currently have it at five dollars a month and there's a promotional rate at seven dollars a month um, after that, that $7 a month goes to 10 Once those spots fill out, there's a few spots left of that. So act quickly, content.syndicate23.co, as I said. Um, and you can find out more information about that membership there. And I'll be dropping more information about it. Um, if you're on YouTube, you'll probably see a video in the channel description, um, in the, cha in the um, channel homepage. And if you're in the podcast, I'll be posting a special short podcast about um, what to look out for on the free feed um, for members all that kind of stuff so um, you know what to look like um, or what's coming up ahead. You can help grow Power Report by um, subscribing to us on YouTube at YouTube at youtube.com slash Dan from the internet. Follow Power Report on Twitter at PowerPortWRLD and Instagram at PowerPort.World. Um, elsewhere on Syndicate 23, we have Audio Face. Our latest episode was on Remy Wolf, Snail Mail, and Parquet Courts. And we're going to be doing a lot of stuff rounding out the end of the year, including um, award show kind of things for our favorite awards and albums of the year. So check that out um, and send us your new music recommendations as well. We have a whole like system for that. Um, you can email us at audiofaceatsyndicate23.co for that. And thank you, Peter, by the way. Peter um, is one of the people who masters the episodes, basically makes them sound as nice as possible. Um, he does the Dead Music Productions. That is um, the production company he is working with to specifically works with um, mastering audio. And if you need podcasts or um, music mastered to make it sound nice, uh, hit them up on Instagram at deadmusic666. Okay, um, with all of that ado, and that was very much ado, um, and genuinely, if you are able to support me on Syndicate 23, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I've said this in a number of different ways, but I'll say it here again. Um, I wouldn't have gotten this far um, to the point where I can like launch a membership subscription platform and deliver members content on a consistent enough basis, especially starting in 2022. Wouldn't have gotten to this point without your support up to this like point, and I'm confident that um, you'll continue to help me as we continue on the ride. And so, we've got a great show coming up right now, and we're going to start with the interview with Owen. Owen, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you so much, honestly, for writing this article that we have out here that we will um, link, of course, uh, for the audience in the podcast description, the YouTube description. But um, it's kind of giving the ability for people to actually get a look into something that we in the kind of like leftist media circles have been acknowledging and witnessing for a while the past couple of years, which is uh, Glenn Greenwald's 
shift to the right and pivot towards right wing audiences. But you, that's sort of like a subjective analysis. You, you were able to actually get some data into that. Um, so if you could, could you walk the audience through a little bit of your methodology and kind of the conclusions that that led you towards as far as what Glenn Greenwald is doing with his platform and how he's using it? And maybe if there's some, um, you know, inaccurate, not inaccuracies, but hypocrisies there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so I should say that my my methodology is subjective, um, and I say that in the article, it's it's totally subjective, uh, but I think it's fair. So, what I did was I went through all of his uh, tweets uh, that I could find that mentioned Fox, um, and that kind of started in September 2016. There's a little bit of a gap in 27 and 20, 2017, 2018, uh, where uh, his his whole timeline is scrubbed. I don't think that there's anything specific that he was going after there. I think he was probably using a tweet deleter and uh, it just kind of ended up where it ended up. Um, but I I separated uh, or I, I went through everything and then, you know, if there were like neutral ones, ones where he was referring to Fox as as an incidental or as kind of like a news hit or something like that, I would remove those. And so, uh, so I just had two categories, just positive and negative. Um, and I, I mean, I'll just read my methodology from the article. So uh, I went through the remainder with an eye to re- reducing the total number of posts. He was going through a whole back and forth. I where he just said the same thing over and over and over again in the thread. I would just include one. Uh, and and then you know there was another there, there's a link that he has used frequently from December 2017, uh, where it's about him criticizing Laura Ingram to her face, and he has used that repeatedly as as evidence that he is an independent minded person. Um, so I, I I kept some, I took some out. Some of them I counted as negative. Some of them as I counted as positive, kind of depending on the um, the context. So I divide the remainder. So if a tweet was directly critical of Fox or a Fox personality or if someone appearing on for appearing on Fox, there weren't any of those. But if there were or if he used a negative comparison of Fox with another net network to make that network look good, there were also none of those. But it would be negative if a tweet was directly positive about Fox, about someone appearing on Fox in defense of Greenwald's appearances on Fox or used a positive comparison of Fox with another liberal network. I listed as positive. I also uh, listed him promoting his appearances as positive because I felt that uh, those were directly reflecting positively on Fox, like the way that he was presenting it. Uh, so I was left with 193 tweets, 33 of them negative, 160 positive. And so first, the first thing I did was I just graphed them out and I found that uh, negative spiked in 2016 and positive started spiking in 2020 and just really, really ramping up in 2021. Uh, I then cross-checked those with his appearances, and surprise, surprise, uh, the more appearances that he had, the more positive that he tweeted. And since he has been regularly appearing on Fox uh, since late last year, about a year ago now, actually, maybe maybe October 2020, uh, it's been universally positive. In fact, I've only found two negative ones since uh, April 30th. 2020. And both of those were on the same day. Uh, I, I believe it was May 19, 2021, 
where he talks about Fox's coverage of Israel, which is, of course, terrible, and he's correct to criticize them for that. Uh, but otherwise, it's been universally positive. I mean, it's included things like him uh, celebrating the uh, Fox ratings as being really, really high compared to MSNBC and CNN, which is an interesting thing to just celebrate as an independent voice. Uh, I've also been, uh, there's, he's like promoted other people's appearances, like, hey, you should watch Fox right now while such and such is on there, which is like the kind of behavior that you do when you're trying to get a job. That was back in April 2021. Uh, since then, of course, he has uh, joined uh, Rumble and Colin, which are part of the kind of general feel VC uh, independent right wing media uh, world. But uh, before that, he was it, it looked like in my interpretation, what it looked like is that he was trying to get a job with Fox. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, it, it's just been almost universally positive and yeah, so that's what I found. Yeah, and folks should check out your work at owenhiggins.substack.com. Of course, we'll spell it out and um, have that in the description because um, your work covers just a lot of great details. And we're going to like kind of talk about the dynamics of independent media a little bit in a moment. But basically, you created definitions for what is positive, um, you know, conversation of Glenn Greenwald about Fox News. You create a definition for what counts as negative. You create a timeline. You created some graphs. And what it sort of leads you to say is that Glenn Greenwald, in angling to expand his audience through Fox News, did a lot more, you know, positive promotion of himself going on the network, of others going on the network, of ratings, which it's the dumbest pissing contest ever because the amount of people who watch Fox News relative to the amount of people in the United States is just, rel just insanely small. And so it's always kind of damning with faint praise. Like, okay, you have this many, like, um, politically, like, really intense right-wingers um, who are, like, watching Fox News in the background while they're getting mad at something else. Like, good for you, I guess, Glenn. But nevertheless, I think it's really important to get this because it's not just like Fox News appearances. That's not just the only hypocritical thing, even though I was able to find a tweet from like 2019 of Glenn Greenwald. It seems like non-sarcastically going after one of the Pod Save America guys, Tommy Vitor, saying that, hey, if you're upset at um, like, why weren't you upset about Obama and uh, Hillary Clinton going on Bill O'Reilly and Fox News if that's like a big issue for you? So we seem to be like pointing out this hypocrisy and being at least able to see this um, when it was pointing to when it was criticizing liberals and the left. But again, because criticizing liberals and the left is kind of only his brand, it's only his message. It's a lot of what the right wing is doing right now of uh, calling being the boys who cried cancel culture, essentially. It's mm -hmm. all they have. And Glenn Greenwald knows how effective it is to build an audience. And so and it's been effective for him. He has also been on Substack. He's been able to build his um, follower count extremely um, as a result of it since leaving The Intercept. And this isn't like a big jealousy here. This is kind of saying, why is it that when you have to grow with your audience even or even move, it's like the audience is leading the journalist in this sense, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I included that in the 2019 as one of the positives. Um, he, I, I believe that that was actually specifically about Bernie going on, though. I mean, the, the thing is that, the thing is that 
since, especially since January 2021, I mean, it has been exclusively uh, a full-throated defense of Fox, um, far more than just calling out the hypocrisy of people like the pod safe guys or, 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 or other uh, liberals who, who are, who are being less than honest about like what's going on here. I mean, how you interpret what he is doing, I suppose in a lot of ways depends on what you think about what his motivations are. I find it hard to look at this data and this information and not see this as a, uh, it's, it's hard for me to look at, sorry, I'm just trying to gather my thoughts here. It's hard for me to look at this and see what he's doing here as, as divided from his self-interest and divided from what he wants to accomplish as far as his own personal interests. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate he has been defending Fox for a long time and, 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 and whether or not that's a positive or a negative is, is up to you. I mean, but um, I think that if you look at his stuff over the last year, it's, it's uh, even, even if you think that it's defensible to kind of defend Fox and going on Fox uh, in a principled uh, way, what he's been doing this year is is pretty sycophantic. And so it, it is different, I think. Yeah, to be clear, the tweet I was referring to appears to be kind of to in defense of Tulsi Gabbard even. And I can like send it to you really fast. So like, you know, what I'm talking about. But essentially, and it would have been in line with a lot of what um, people on certain parts of the left were doing at this time, which was like pointing out criticisms of, um, you know, basically inconsistencies and criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, even to some extent Elizabeth Warren versus other more mainstream um, progressive or like liberal democratic candidates at the time. And this had to go around the, the idea of going on Fox News interviews and like all, uh, Fox News for interviews. And I think all cards on the table, if you're a candidate running for office, you need to go do media appearances. And if you can use your media platform intelligently knowing like when bernie sanders did that town hall on fox news in 2020 knowing that he was going kind of in the bullpen he was able to flip the talking points that we all knew he was going to get like what medicare for all cost this much money and people aren't interested in big government socialism and that ended with the crowd that fox news gathered in pennsylvania whatever cheering for bernie sanders all right, there's a way where you can use the platform that Fox News is giving you to nudge and convince that audience, hey, some of the things that progressives are fighting for isn't um, like it's not that scary. The things that the ways that the right wing fear mongers about it um, doesn't hold a lot of merit. Nevertheless, all the people who seem to be making this argument besides, you know, myself and maybe others who are like more principled in this, folks like Jimmy Dore, folks like Glenn Greenwald, who are going on Fox News very often aren't really that often speaking to they aren't i'm not seeing a lot of the shoehorning in progressive ideas or making the case for progressive ideology i'm seeing a lot of yes all of the things you believe all of the fears you already have are correct and by the way check out my 
uh, spin on independent media because I will continue to confirm those fears and assumptions about the world that you see that you're constantly fed on outlets like Fox News. It seems to me like um, it, it, it's like a, I guess like a bait and switch sort of where they're saying that they're going on Fox News to spread their ideology and to reach a new audience. But in reality, they're using that new audience to tell them what they want to hear, which is what Fox News does best, and then using that to make their own money. But I'm not seeing any like left connection here. Is this something that as we broaden it out from this sort of like Fox News perspective and more into Glenn Greenwald's sycophantic like behaviors you were kind of alluding to? Does that kind of tack with what you've been seeing in that Glenn Greenwald is more motivated in telling his audience what he wants to hear and guiding his audience, which is increasingly more right-leaning and sycophantic? Yeah, I mean, I think that... I think that there's a strong argument to be made that uh, Greenwald is doing what he's doing uh, from a purely out of pure self-interest. And so that he maybe doesn't even believe all the stuff that he's saying about about how great Fox is and about. But uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I mean, he has become a just a right-wing partisan at this point. So what, at what point, at what point do his motivations no longer matter? I think, um, is, is, is a valid question to ask. I mean, I think as far as, as he and Jimmy Dore and other, other right-wing figures that have some cachet on the left, as far as they go, um, they are, it's interesting because they're presenting themselves and their perspective as independent and unique and, and, and kind of like they're, they're presenting themselves as, as kind of part of like a new paradigm where they're challenging things from like top bottom and, and, uh, inequality and like that you know like it's not about left and right it's about like who's on top and who's not and, um and i think that there's like a limited utility to that but ultimately uh if you're advocating for an alliance with the right wing you are advocating for an alliance with people who adhere to an ideology that it, it's it, it it's very clear like what the final goal is here, and that's not one that ends with a uh, multiracial uh, working class uh, with where where people have all of their different identity interests are all kind of combined together into their push for equality and and justice um that's not the right wing's uh final or even intermediate goal and so for people like uh like jimmy and glenn um and 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 their other kind of lesser hanger hangers on uh what they are presenting is a view that ends up 
tilting to the right because the more that you kind of ignore those aspects of the political reality, the easier it is for the right wing to continue to uh, to gain power and to kind of make its way into these left spaces. And I would also say that, you know, if you're going to say that you're a part of independent media and and that you're, you know, telling people the truth and 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 uh, and doing something different, um, which like, you know, look, uh, Glenn and Jimmy, they they make their money from their their audience and their supporters. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but like, let's not pretend that that means that they're that that the ideology that they're uh, representing and the positions that they are taking are somehow like contrary to the interests of the people who are really in power. I mean, uh, the stuff that they say is 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 almost all perfectly in line with a certain stripe of far right billionaire VC capital. Uh, investor money, and uh, we would be kidding ourselves to pretend that 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 what they're doing is really uh, challenging power in any meaningful way. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think you can even look at. Um, I think on YouTube it's easier to see because you can just look at videos in chronological order. And um, other shows, uh, the Majority Report, Sam Cedar, Emma Viglin, and a number of others have done this as well, where they just look at uh, the video history of Jimmy Dore and they see. Um, at a certain point, you notice that the views sort of um, dip down uh, because Jimmy, like the force of the vote stuff that Jimmy Dore is like talking about over the course of 2021 is sort of fizzling out. And so Jimmy starts doing more videos about COVID vaccine and denialism and skepticism and all those other things. And then all of a sudden he's making in more views. And so his channel is more flooded by that. And so I think it, it's very interesting that, yeah, like you're saying, these Ultimately, these people who call themselves counterculture and independent media are people who are ultimately end up parroting, like, like they end up going in the free market of ideas, but the free market of ideas always leads you to the hunt for money. And that hunt for money usually leads you to right wing uh, millionaire and billionaire venture capital, like you were saying. Thank you so much for um, taking the time out uh, for speaking to me on these like also these really um heady important issues um for us for our audience again uh what lets folks know where they can find you yeah yeah uh, my Substack, which is e-o-i-n-h-i-g-g-i-n-s dot substack.com follow me on twitter at twitter.com backslash e-o-i-n-h-i-g-g-i-n-s underscore anything that i don't do on my newsletter uh which is a bunch of other stuff uh is on there um but those are the two places where you can find my work and there's truly a collection, I'm speaking to the audience, there's truly a collection of really great like leftist substacks out there. Um, there's, and I'll continue talking to them about the show, definitely in my rotation. Um, thank you so much for coming on and thank you so much for the work you do. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For the last few months on Power Report, here and there, not like as a consistent thing, but just because... Um, a combination of what's popular on YouTube right now, what is, I think, a negative influence um, in media that I think we can make an example of, and some of my own personal history. Um, a lot of our criticism has eventually centered around YouTube commentator, so-called comedian Jimmy Dore. And um, back when I worked at TYT, I was assigned to work on Jimmy Dore's show for a period of time for folks who are kind of um, new to what I'm doing, what I'm talking about. 
And back then internally, I tried to raise the alarm of Jimmy's um, behavior on air, specifically how I didn't think that he was applying uh, the journalistic rigor that we were trying to uh, display elsewhere on the TYT network on his show, which is a really nice way of saying I don't think he was reading the articles. I didn't think he feel that he was trying to express these opinions um, or even really had these opinions um, very, you know, closely. I wasn't really sure he was really a progressive or whether he was just selling certain talking points, or repeating certain talking points that made him sound leftist enough to make sure that people would still, you know, um, pay money for it. And so eventually um, an action around Jimmy Dore at the company at TYT allowed Jimmy to use TYT to grow his audience and legitimize his platform before going independent and grifting to left-wing nihilist and right-wing anti-vaxxers, which brings us to today. And so in a previous episode of Power Report, I pointed out that just as I'm upset with Jimmy Dore, I'm upset with Jank Uger, the CEO of Young Turks, who um, I brought this up with him a couple of times. And to an extent by not acting on that, on mine and other folks' warnings about this, um, enabling Jimmy to some extent. And that clip made the rounds on social media, and I'll play that clip here now. But now he's becoming broad, platformed by broader portions of the left, your Glenn Greenwalds, the world, etc. As well as media figures like Tucker Carlson and faux populists on the right. These are stepping stones that Jenk and the Young Turks, and by proxy me, help laid for him. And I don't feel great about that. And I hope Jenk doesn't feel great about that either. Now, the remarkable thing about this, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, I don't have TYT's audience um, just on my own. And so I... Um, you know, I just wanted to get that off of my chest and for people who were dedicated enough and followed me to, you know, hear my truth. Uh, but again, that got clipped and eventually made its rounds on Twitter. And uh, remarkably, Jenk apologized. So here's a clip from a recent bonus episode of TYT that was posted to their YouTube channel. And they were talking about how Jimmy Dore was caught altering the title of um, a video that he was talking about in an article like he was referencing or he was. Basically, he altered the title. He displayed a graphic that had an altered quote, essentially, um, from a different news article that basically changed the meaning of what it was trying to say about the efficacy of COVID vaccines or like why people were choosing to take the vaccine um, internationally or not. And Jimmy Dore was trying to make it say, seem like a, basically like a something that COVID vaccine deniers would enjoy is going like ah see this is why you shouldn't uh, take the vaccine that would make so many things in um the economy society easier as i'll go into it later on the segment but anyways uh, jimmy got caught in 4k a lot of people were like hey you are misrepresenting this quote to your audience it's bad journalism it's bad taste i mean like uh you're caught buddy what's happening and so jimmy Dore backtracks he's like oh it was a producer. He wasn't supposed to do this thing. Um, I berated him. I fired him, et cetera. So that kind of mistake shouldn't happen again, won't happen again, et cetera. Um, 
but yeah, Jimmy supposedly blamed his producer and fired his producer over it because his producer supposedly does it, did it. Um, which is funny coming from Jimmy Dore, a guy who used to pride himself over making his own graphics. He would often get upset when we would make graphics for him. Um, and we would make graphics for him more of like a technical, logistical reason. It was just easier for us to play graphics in the control room like we did for every other show than for Jimmy to play graphics out of his computer when, you know, sometimes notifications can go off of your computer. It's just not as good of a production, right? Um, but nevertheless, at least back then, Jimmy loved to produce. Uh, he loved to make graphics on his own. I'm not sure if he's doing that right now. I have no idea how the production of a show works right now. I would get tired of making graphics on my own. I'm already editing the show by myself. I get that. But um, again, that's just what I know with my knowledge of these things. But here is uh, the response from Jenk and Anna, which includes kind of an apology from Jenk. I mean, uh, clearly that guy made a mistake, which was working for Jimmy in the first place. And by the way, I'll own up to my mistake. I made a mistake by ever hiring Jimmy. Agreed. Right? Mm -hmm. And so it But he was sending uh, steaks and kissing up to you and presenting himself as someone completely different back in the day. Someone who actually was a progressive, someone who actually had morals. I was able to see through it because I had per personal interactions uh, that made it abundantly clear what type of person Jimmy Dore really was. I also saw the way he treated producers here. So it would not surprise me in the least bit that he would uh, use a producer as a scapegoat for his own disgusting deceptions and lies. Look, him sending steaks, I don't care about. No, no, right? it didn't have an impact on you in terms of hiring him, but I'm just saying, like, of he presented not. himself as someone completely different. Right. Shout out to Ann in this clip because one of the producers she's talking about is definitely me. Um, I, yeah, I definitely remember a moment where Jimmy was particularly having a day and that resulted in um me having a day and anna was definitely a person there was like comforting me and understanding like what was going on because um yeah she, she had been there and dealing with jimmy and um i didn't know about the story at the time that anna talked about where um apparently there's i talked about this in the other episode of powerport as well where apparently jimmy had said a really um sexually harassing kind of comment to anna that made her really feel upset but um and to be clear, it wasn't like uh, sexual harassment. That was the reason I was like annoyed with Jimmy. It's more as like he wasn't able to run his show properly. That's not going to go that in that rabbit hole there. Um, but yeah, Jenk actually owned up to the apology. So wh why do I bring this up? Is it vindicating? Sure. Is it because I like gloating? Absolutely. Is it because I learned from Jenk that you have to point out when you're right in independent media because no one else will give you the credit that you deserve or the respect that you should be getting otherwise? Absolutely sure. Uh, but no, my decision to leave TYT ultimately didn't come down to Jimmy Dore. My decisions were largely personal. And again, I left on pretty good terms. I still appear on the network fairly often. Um, even when I was working there, I vocally disagreed with Jenk often on things that were more politically related that had less to do with personnel. Um, disagreements on the left are allowed and good and important. It's a practice that we should have, and I think it's a practice we do have on the left, but I don't think we have constructive disagreement very often. Um, I don't think the people who are lobbing the criticisms are often doing it to get a positive result. Sometimes they are, and I think oftentimes they are, especially on the left, but oftentimes they're doing it to get um, 
call out points and retweets and attention, which is a powerful weapon to use. But like, again, to what result? I really, again, wasn't going for the attention so much as I wanted to clear the air on something that um, was bothering me. And I also think that a number of people in the TYT audience could kind of notice and realize and start to pick the tea leaves off of. So I just wanted to like share my piece on that. But this is to say that disagreements on the left are allowed and they're good and important. Integrity is ultimately what matters and being willing to admit and accept fault is also what matters. And here's what I say. And here's what I'll like stick my neck out a little bit. Um, Jank really listens. Like I've seen it. I've seen Jank be really wrong on things and he'll dig his like feet in being wrong on things. And then um, once the cameras are off and we can take him aside and like talk to him on stuff, a lot of times he's movable. It'll take some time there, but like I have experienced a gamut of people in media at TYT and not at TYT and Jank for his age, for his type is one of the more people you can actually talk to have a conversation with and maybe you won't win him totally to your side but the whole point is we shouldn't on the left we should be able to know when there are you know marginal differences in the grand scheme of things versus people we need to write off because we know their intentions are not good we know that they're not willing to listen to criticism or pass on criticism in a respectful way or um respond or take accountability in any kind of way it's equally important on the left if the left is going to build a coalition we have to keep our imperfect allies and not faction off into silos within the left so that we can't collaborate together. I'm not sure that totally made sense as a sentence in my notes now that I'm thinking about it. But what I'm trying to say is that the left tends to, you know, find one disagreement or a couple disagreements with a person and then um, silo them off or silo themselves off away from that person. And then once they find new people to disagree with within their end group, they just further silo off and further silo off like cell division. And divide and conquer is how the right wing is winning right now. That's how they're destroying um, Democrats electorally. And that's how they'll continue to do it because they're not playing fair. They're not playing right. They don't all love each other. They have arguments and infighting with themselves. With themselves. The white nationalists don't love all the um, moderates. Um, the moderates don't love all the neocons, although it really barely seems like there's a difference because they all really want to expand um, the American imperial war machine and the um, welfare project that is the American military system. The right wing is able to build coalitions even though they disagree with each other. And they can build them strong and they can accomplish the things they want to accomplish. And the left needs to do that as well. The left is actually fighting for righteous things. They're fighting for equality and rights and justice. And there are people broadly in the left who agree with those things. They may need some help on the margins getting the broader, fuller picture on um, like a Marxist analysis, for example, right? But I'm also on the side um, 
of a point that was made rather recently by Kyle Kalinske, another person on the left I don't agree with all the time and haven't agreed with much very often, but he made a great point on this too, that leftists need to not hold on to things. Kyle Kalinske was making the point about labels and labels like Marxist and socialist and Leninist, Leninist, but I think that can be extrapolated to not holding on to minor grudges of differences within the left. Because the right wing are literally trying to like warmonger and fight. Like they're they've turned Kyle Rittenhouse into a hero, like a folk hero. For not minding his own business and killing people and getting away free with it in the courts. That's what the left is up against while we get into petty arguments about this, that, and the other thing. And I'm not saying that like, oh, we need to set aside our differences and um, give people a pass when they do or say problematic shit. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying figure out the people who can take accountability for their actions in the past and realize that those are more likely allies than enemies. Because we do have enemies in our ranks. They're people who are only feeding people nihilism and sending people um, in circles in a time when we need a path. We need to get serious. Strategically and ideologically. There will always be ego in politics, especially in media. Lord knows I would be the last person to change that sitting in front of a camera and talking in front of a microphone. Really fancy, nice-sounding microphone, if I do say so myself. Thank you, Peter. Um, but if I can demonstrate anything with this entire, you know, going on, it's that the left can handle disagreements in a mature way, and we can fight together another day. We don't need to yell over each other or call each other's motives into question when we're politically allies anyways, we agree on things 90% of the way. And when we have our disagreements, we can call those out and talk about those and turn those into dialogues. But when it comes down to it, we know who our allies are and we know who are the people who are more likely to help us. Because our enemies are really good at uniting. And when they unite and we are divided, we can easily be defeated. We have easily been defeated and we will continue to be. We being the working class, we being um, the 99%. But United, which hasn't happened yet, but that's why they work so hard and will, are willing to unite against us. But United, oh, we send them running. We send them running. That's what they don't want. And so that's what we got to give them. Left unity. You wanted it, you got it, the truth about inflation. I do love that I get to talk about economics every once in a while, but um, this is a time when economics is in the forefront of the political conversation, and I think it's really important to um, get it out of the way as far as what is inflation right now. Because a lot of people are going to be talking about inflation, they're, but they're not really going to be knowledgeable about what that means, what that entails, what the future of that is. So... Um, Inflation, broadly speaking, is what happens when um, 
the nominal prices, the prices you see for things are going up, but uh, the value or what you're getting from that thing isn't changing. So, um, for example, if I have some hair cream here, I'm not going to show the brand, um, except I am just doing that now. But uh, you can see this hair cream here in this like little green bottle. Um, let's say I spent $5 for that hair cream or whatever. Um, inflation would be that hair cream at that same chemical consistency, at that same amount, that same weight, then becomes $8. But I'm getting the same thing, but I have to spend more money to get it. So that's happening right now. You're seeing um, prices go up for things, even though we're getting the same amount or less of those things. Um, you're seeing it with cars. You're seeing it with food. You're seeing it all over the place in America. And so another thing we're seeing at the same time is the labor force participation rate is at its lowest it's been since the 1970s. The labor force participation rate is something that people don't talk about nearly enough, but I think it's a really important metric. Arguably, I think, um, a better metric than unemployment. But it shows out of the people who are technically, you know, capable of working in the United States, how many of them are participating in the labor force, which means they're working or actively searching for work. And that number took a dip in the recession and has been generally trending downwards since the recession. Um, and it took a nosedive uh, during the COVID lockdowns and steadily recovered, but hasn't really reached um, or uh, superseded uh, pre-2020 levels. But yeah, as we look at this chart here, it's at its lowest rate since the 1970s. So bigger things are going on here. Again, COVID-19 happened, and so we have to start diagnosing here. Because of COVID-19, it was a major supply shock. You had a lot of situations where workers just couldn't work in the amounts they could. You had a lot of workers die off. You had a lot of workers change industries. You had a lot of workers who maybe could go back to work, but they could only go back to work certain days of the week or in smaller amounts. And so production for some things was slower to adapt. The chip shortage is happening because um, so many of the chips were made in the entire world were made in so few places that when those places weren't able to open up to, at full capacity, um, we weren't able to meet the demand for chips that was existing before COVID that was rising because we're putting computer processors in everything now. And because governments um, in the United States and in Europe through economic neoliberalism uh, process that we can go on about in a different PowerPoint episode, honestly, but a process that led to the outsourcing of jobs out of countries to places where labor was the cheapest. That meant that countries couldn't go, oh, well, we can no longer import chips. We'll just make them ourselves here. We don't have the factories here in the United States to just turn them around and turn them in the chip factories. We don't have the educated populace who can turn around and start, you know, fabricating chips the same way to the same scale that can be done in Taiwan and China. Um, there's so many different dynamics. You see, when you have an economic system, a political system, a social system, 
that has been weakened, that has been failing for so long, that reaches this point um, where it really can't go any further. And so when you actually talk to the experts, when you actually take a worldwide look at it, it sucks. Like inflation is bad everywhere. Um, in the UK, energy costs are really high, and so are snacks and Uber fares. In Germany, um, fuel is really expensive. Rent is also increasing, and so are the price of consumer electronics, again, because of that aforementioned chip shortage. And so when we're looking at the problem, we know that um, it was a supply shock. All of a sudden, you had way less supply while demand stayed the same and oftentimes increased because people just had more disposable income because they weren't spending it. And so they wanted to buy more random electronic crap or um, maybe spend more on fuel to go on road trips because they had some vacation time or could work remotely. That is some portion of the economy. Um, But... Supply is all out of whack. You have this thing that's happening um, in the ports of L.A. and Long Beach where there aren't enough dock workers for a moment to unload all of the ships. And so you have a bunch of ships waiting around the port, um, which has a bunch of environmental ramifications. Um, apparently, there was a ship that dragged an anchor along uh, the beach and ruptured a pipeline that led to oil spilling um, in a beach community. Uh, just south of Los Angeles, and that has environmental ramifications. The smoke in the air has environmental environmental ramifications. So again, you can start to see how this becomes a system-wide issue. And since we're talking about environmental ramifications and climate change, inflation or climate change is also affecting inflation in a really significant way. Um, PBS spoke to a Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal, noted conservatives, generally speaking, um, not to say that all their reporters are conservatives, but um, one of their reporters was speaking to PBS um, about things that are going on in the world and how, in a lot of ways, climate change is making things more difficult, especially for food and agriculture and energy growth. On the climate change side, are we talking about essentially uh, adverse or horrible kind of weather situations in different parts of the world apply, uh, affecting the supply of goods, meaning the, the what's able to grow? Precisely. So, I mean, in Brazil, we've, we've had a drought, um, which has pushed up prices. But um, across parts of Asia, that's exactly what we're seeing. So in India, we've seen terrible, heavy rains, landslides. That's affected just the production of vegetables like cauliflower, tomatoes, and push the prices of those um, items up. Also in China, the vegetable growing regions in China um, have been affected by heavy rains. That's affected prices there. Um, so it's basically yeah, bad weather. And also we've had you know terrible um, wheat harvests in the US as well, Canada, Russia. Wheat prices are now at their highest level in almost a decade as well. So on the, in terms of climate change, I'm talking about a, a lot of rain. Yeah. Um, and in Brazil's case, not enough rain. Um, the worst, as I said, the worst drought um, in almost a century, um, which, I mean, most people here attribute that to, to climate change. That portion was Brazil. Um, Caesar and Bam really went in on a uh, last episode of Power Report, episode 36, 
on Brazil and Bolsonaro kind of ruining things there. But um, a lot of what you're having is Bolsonaro ignoring and worsening an economic and uh, climate disaster in Brazil that is leading to these very tangible catastrophes where um, people don't have the energy they can use to reliably and safely heat and cook food. People barely have enough food to eat, and that's going to have um, social ramifications for crime as people get more desperate. And that's going to strain resources at a time when COVID-19 is already a big issue and Brazil has not gotten under control, unfortunately. And so you can see how what I want to illustrate, among other things, is how um, inflation and a number of these economic issues can sort of get abstract because they involve these words and terms and mechanisms with money that um, people in their everyday lives don't really interact with. But when you start to break it down, you start to see how all these things have a connection. All these things have um, ties to other aspects of society. And, um, you know, there's a ledger that's being run and nothing kind of gets out of it easily if that makes sense um there's just i don't really know how to underscore the devastation that is about to be seen in so many parts of the world that are vulnerable to climate catastrophes and emergencies like this because help is not going to be coming and this is say to bring things back home that our economy cannot adapt to shocks, like I was saying. Um, I think there was one part that was um, noted really well in this New York Times article about um, Hickory, North Carolina, where you have a bunch of furniture stores and like furniture manufacturers who are booming during the pandemic, but. And it's like there's a big demand for furniture. People are, you know, moving around, moving to bigger spaces, um, working from home. And so, you know, there's a quote here um, from one of the workers, I mean, the president for human reach for HR at one of these furniture brands saying, we'd love to expand capacity, but um, every furniture worker, every furniture company is in the same boat as we are. Uh, and another chief executive at the company is kind of elaborating and saying that even if there were enough workers, the surge isn't going to last long enough. It would take to get a workforce completely trained and get them up to speed. So that is to say we have an economy right now where because we now have this demand in furniture that we weren't expecting, because we've outsourced all of our furniture making, and now we can't get furniture back in. We have people who are willing to pay top dollar for some furniture, but not enough people to make the furniture and no reason to invest in getting those jobs back to make the furniture because by the time you do all of that, the assumption is that the economy will sort itself out in the meantime. And so business owners are already kind of pricing that in. Knowing all of this context, let's look at what the right-wing narrative is about inflation and how they're spending it. They're saying that it's Biden and the Democrats' fault that for inflation that's happening, that they've been ignoring it and downplaying it. And um, it's going to continue to be a popular talking point on the right because 
whether it's inflation or whether it's Dr. Seuss or whether it's Big Bird or whether it's critical race theory or whether it's literally anything, if it walks, talks, or exists, the Republicans will make it seem like it's terrible for Democrats. It's like Rule 34 almost um, for Republicans and how they'll use it against Democrats. Don't Google Rule 34 if you don't know what it is, please. <laughs> um, it's basically like if it, if it exists, Republicans will use it as a reason um, to work against Democrats. And so more reasons why we know that it's not Biden's fault is that Biden's COVID release measures were just that, COVID relief. That's the only tangible thing um, he's done up to this point that would have tipped the needle in any direction, um, economically speaking, because that was a large amount of government spending. Um, it was watered down from what was originally planned anyways, and we were mad about that at the time, and that was largely because of um, conservatives watering it down. Um, there were uh, some moderates who were in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party who insisted on a watered-down bill, but most of the Republicans, again, at the time, were talking about Dr. Susan cancel culture. But, so yeah, what would the government have done at the time? Not responded to COVID-19? By the way, responding to government 19, sorry, responding to COVID-19 with government spending is exactly what Trump did. So if government spending is responsible for inflation, where's the blame for Trump? Where are the honest actors who are saying, well, this mechanism increases inflation and Trump and Biden are, e are equal to blame? I'm not seeing many of those. That's not allowed, obviously. but. Trump's prolonging of the pandemic in the U.S. by turning masks into a political identity topic um, has arguably worsened the economic impacts of COVID more than anything Biden could have possibly ever done because, A, Biden hasn't done all that much, and B, there is, if COVID-19 were neutralized, if we had like more control over it, things could go back to normal. And if people didn't believe that wearing masks or getting a vaccine was a matter of their rights being infringed on, and if Donald Trump didn't play that game for political points, then yeah, it really would have gone differently. And we really would have saved, at this point, hundreds of thousands of lives at this point. So once you know the truth about inflation, as I've kind of just explained here, the motives behind their spin gets that much more obvious. They want you to take, they want, I mean, they want to take something that's abstract. Economics gets very abstract and kind of a little bit high level and complicated sometimes. But like I said, once you break it down, this gets into not just the very material, serious things that people are going through, but it's real and it's urgent. This is climate change. This is, um, social welfare, not in like, you know, um, people getting checks, but like whether or not people can make it day to day and live in a community together or worry and be concerned about um, poverty driven violence.
The great thing about Power Report is that you can understand that I'm not saying these things to cheerlead for Joe Biden by any means. I'm not trying to cheerlead for any political party or for the country in general. I'm just straight up trying to tell you, trying to break down the best ways I can. I'm going to try to get better and better and better as time goes on. That there's a real story going on. And you don't have to be the smartest person to know what's going on. You just have to listen to the right people and trust them and know to make sure how to trust them. But once you learn what's going on, you're armed with that information. You can't be swindled by people who are hoping that you're ignorant. By people who are betting that you aren't doing your own research. Even though you're listening to people who are proudly going, do your own research. Because they're hoping that you'll trust them to do the research for you. And they have their own interests that are more aligned with their wallets and their power, not yours. But on PowerPort, we care about our power, what we're doing together, what we're building together. So thank you for joining me on this episode. Um, make sure to become a member. Check out all of that um, Owen bonus. Many more bonuses to come from PowerPort. Audio face bonuses to come in 2022 and special events, um, special guests, a number of different things, all the perks I can find um, as thanks for people who are supporting Syndicate 23. And all of this will make the entire network, the free stuff, the paid stuff, higher quality. I think it's been higher quality and I've built that high quality over the years up to this point. And so um, hope to continue to perform and do well for y'all. So um, without further ado, I'm going to sign off for this episode. Um, now talk to you in the next one. Cheers.